powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hello, everyone. Hi there. Hi. Welcome, everyone. Hi. Please sit down. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. You know, there are over 850,000 independent podcasts, and while variety is the spice of life, I am super excited that you have decided to stop by our growing space on the various streaming platforms. Before we get into the episode, I want to give a huge shout out to our last guest, two-time Olympic gold medalist and four-time world champion, Maddie Musselman. It was very well received, and I was so happy that we could showcase her incredible career here on this show. So, welcome to episode 75. We've got a very exciting episode for you today. We have on the show actress and writer Blanchard Ryan. She'll be talking about growing up in professional hockey royalty, her time on NTV, working with Broken Lizard, Sex in the City, and of course her starring turn in the box office and critical hit 2003's Open Water. Let's just go ahead and get her on out here. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and welcome all the way from New York City, Blanchard Ryan. Blanchard, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How has the weather been out by you today? Oh, it's beautiful. It's crisp air and lots of uh, sunshine and a perfect day. I start my interviews off with the same question, and that is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, it's it's definitely been a roller coaster. Um, I've been very fortunate, you know, to not have any, you know, direct tragedies to my nearest and dearest, but um, being in New York, at the very beginning, we got hit really hard. And I think in the long run, that probably helped us in terms of we understood exactly how scary, you know, this thing was. And we were all, you know, it was just ambulances full of bodies lined up on side streets by all the hospitals. I mean, it was just absolutely, you know, just devastating. And so I think since then, New Yorkers have had a little bit more of a sense of caution throughout the process. It's been good for us in the long run, but it was a tough start. And then, you know, it's just so sad when you saw it roll out to all the other cities because we understood what you know, was coming, you know, their way. And you just feel so helpless to really do anything. And um, so I've gotten through it so far and uh, so thrilled to be able to see family and friends a little bit more now. And um, I'm hopeful, but still very concerned about what comes next. But just mm. taking it, taking it day by day, I guess. Every journey has a beginning. Now, you were born in Boston, am I correct? That's right, yes. What was it like to grow up there? Well, I didn't really. Um, my mom was uh, born and bred in Boston, and but when I was born, my brother and I, we, my dad was coaching hockey at Colgate University in upstate New York. And my mother, <laughs> she was very confident and loved all her, her local doctors and everything. But when it came to giving birth, she went home to Boston <laughs> to give birth in the big city. So I was technically born in Boston, but then we went right back to Hamilton, New York, um, where I lived for, you know, I guess three or four years. Yeah. 
So during our research for this interview, we discovered that you are the daughter of Ron Ryan, president of the Philadelphia Flyers. Dad is dad. <laughs> he was until well, he retired, yeah. What was it like to have a father so ingrained in such a historic hockey franchise? It was so much fun. Um, he's Canadian, and he grew up uh, playing and um, went to Colby College. And um, then he went into coaching, and he was with first the New England Whalers, which became the Hartford Whalers, and then moved on to Philadelphia after that. So I just grew up in a hockey rink. I skated before I walked. We, It was our whole life, our whole family life, and all our family friends and all the, you know, my little friends growing up were always the, the children of his colleagues and players. So, um, yeah, just a total rink rat. I loved it. Uh, I know some daughters, it's funny, and some sons that, uh, that you know, just rejected it entirely. Like they were just, they were just tired of everything being hockey, hockey, hockey. And they were also tired of their fathers being, you know, traveling so much and being away so many nights and weekends and, and did not like hockey. Um, but I went the other way. I totally drank the Kool-Aid and still love it. I got to know, do you dare cheer for another franchise? Yes, we we do, but it's funny. It's not as pure as being a fan. I mean, it's I don't know. It's sort of tainted by commerce, right? Because you're being paid by that franchise. Right. So, you know, kids who grew up watch, you know, grew up in the Midwest or you know, grew up in the South, and they their grandparents took them to football games or baseball games or whatever. That is sort of a pure fandom to me. I mean, you know, when my dad worked for a certain team, we rooted for that team. But then, you know, he worked for another one. You root for that one, and it's. And then you end up rooting, you know, you get to know the people. So then you, you know, you root for them wherever they end up, wherever they get traded to, wherever they're playing, you want success for them and their families. But it's not, it's not really fandom, pure fandom, a little different. Now, did you ever get to rub shoulders with any of the legendary players? Oh, I'm lucky to say that I have. Yeah. Um, the, the guys, the old, you know, the Canadian hockey guys, there's a very, very small fraternity. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's, it's still a kick to me. Um, there's, there's nobody I love to spend time more than, than hockey players, you know, sitting at a bar, drinking beer, telling stories. It's basically the funniest, you know, just the most wonderful way to spend time. And I was very lucky to be around a lot of those legendary figures growing up. Okay. So I got to know, did you get to meet Wayne Gretzky? And if you did, what's he like? Oh yes, I have. I, oh. I have. And, and his dad, who was wonderful. Um, He's in the nicest man, uh, Janet, his wife was, you know, sort in my, my end of the business and Wayne obviously is in my dad's side, but we all went to, um, the Olympics in Japan, um, in Nagano and when a bunch, we had seven flyers, um, playing, you know, for different teams playing. So my dad and I went over and we got to spend a lot of time with them and just a delightful, just nice, you know, just down to earth, funny, uh, warm people, really a pleasure. So moving on, do you have any favorite memories from the University of New Hampshire? Wow. Um, well, <laughs> it was a beautiful school. It was sort of like you picture it, you know, at Ivy, like brick buildings with the Ivy all over it. And um, and I, I love my classes. I mean, really, I was. Just, it sounds so dorky, but I, I didn't go into college to be a philosophy major, but I took a philosophy class as one of my general education requirements. And I just fell in love with it. And it really, I mean, it changed my life. It just gave me a way to look at the world and, and sort of a way to understand, you know, a feeling of like, I'm not the only one that feels this way about these things. And, and you know, I ended up sort of really getting into the Stoics, which I I still try to practice to this day. But, and, you know, interestingly enough, so many other people in my major, you know, went in a completely different direction and, and what how, what they responded to. But I just think it's nice to realize there's a whole 
world of people out there that look at the way, look at the world the way that you do a little bit and help you navigate it and understand yourself and other people. And I really, really so grateful for that. So again, while we were doing our research, can you tell us if it's true that you worked for Club Med? I did. I did. That was my first job out of college. Um, I worked in Ixtapa, Mexico, and I was on the sports team. I taught aerobics and did beach volleyball and, you know, any of the, the land sports, we called them, you know, any of the, the fun and games that we did. And then we all sang and danced and performed in the shows at night. They put on these variety shows every night. <laughs> <laughs> it's the place. It's hilarious. But it was also all these different people from all over the world and, you know, all us young people there. And um, not sure I've ever worked so hard in my entire life. It was seven days a week from 6 a.m. to midnight. I mean, just no days off. I mean, mm. I, you'd have to like ask permission to go make a phone call. And, and it, you know, it, it was it was very, very, we called it slaves in paradise. But on the other hand, we had so much fun. I met people I would never have you know, crossed paths with in my life. And um, we were outside in the sun and swimming and, you know, exercising all day. And it was it was great. It was great. I would have probably stayed there a little longer, but um, the Gulf War started while I was while I was down there. And so they froze everybody in the villages that we were in, I would have liked to try another village or two. I probably would have done it for a little longer, but having already been there for six or seven months, I, I just went home, but it was a wonderful experience. I'd love any kid that age. I would tell them to go do that. Hmm. It's uh, just a way to grow up a little more and meet, you know, open your, expand your mind and meet people from all over the world and look at different ways of life. And um, I thought it was a great experience. Tell us what it was like to work at MTV. MTV was absolutely fantastic. It was my one and only desk job I've ever had. But back then, it was all run by like young, powerful, fantastic women. I've never been in a place because I grew up in the sports world, which is you know entirely male. I mean, except for the occasional secretary, but as we called them back then. It, MTV was just all the women were in charge. They were all the lawyers. They were the business people. They were the ones with the MBA. They were making all the creative decisions. And it was just fascinating to me. I idolized them all. I was just in awe of them. It was, you know, right at the very beginning of a lot of the new technology. I remember hearing about motion capture for the first time there and seeing a demonstration, you know, when they put the little dots on people and they moved mm -hmm. their hands and the, and the thing would move on the screen. We were all like, oh, my God, you know, that's magic. <laughs> and uh, it was just so much fun. And it was right in the heart of Times Square, was, you know, right on 44th and Broadway. So we were just in the middle of, you know, the, all the mayhem and um, just so many fun access to parties and concerts. And you just it was just a fantastic job. But I was started auditioning and um, starting to get work at that time. And uh, my boss started calling me Mrs. Doubtfire. She's like, you're constantly like, running, <laughs> changing clothes and like running out of the office and then like running back in and changing again. And, you know, it's, and she just was like, you're you're making money. You're doing fine. Like, take the leap. And she just said, you know, we'll be here. If, you know, if you crash and burn, you can come back. So I did. And I, I um, appreciate her encouraging you, me to do that. Did you watch the documentary, I Want My MTV? I haven't, but I, I, it's funny. I, I know quite a few people who are involved in the making of it and prob you know, probably in it too, and I haven't yet. I really should. I watched it, uh, oh, four or five months ago. It was a complete and well-done documentary, and in my opinion, leaves no stone unturned. It's got warts. It's got everything. Uh, in my opinion, absolutely brilliant. Oh, thank you for for reminding me because you know, my buddies and I, you know, my old MTV friends, we sort of like, you know, buzzing around in the group text, and then I just sort of, you know, how you put things on your list, and then they just they just forget about them. So I will definitely bump that off the list. Did you always want to be an actress, or is that something that evolved as you got older? 
Yeah, as I say, I'm still not sure. Um, <laughs> I uh, no, I never did. I never did a play. I, I I played the flute, so I was in. You know, I did marching band and orchestra and jazz band, all that stuff. I was pretty dorky, but never did a play or anything like that. And then when I was in college, I got into doing print work. You know, modeling. I guess you'd say I had a little agency in Portland, Maine, and a, another bigger one in Boston. And it was just during, you know, for college, you could work for a day and it was your beer money for the whole semester. You know, I mean, it was just, it was different than working at the mall or working at a bar. So I got into that and just, you know, did, it was basically like um, catalog work and, you know, it was nothing grand, it wasn't high fashion, but it was, it was fun and easy and, um, and lucrative. So when I, afterwards, I traveled around for a couple of years to Club Med and all that stuff. And then um, when I finally got to New York, I just figured, well, you know, I'll stick my toe in the water again and see what happens. I ended up getting an agent, starting auditioning, mostly for commercials. But then once you get to know the casting people for commercials, they're like, oh, you want to, what do you think of trying for this indie, little indie film or this short film? And so then you just start doing that. And then before you know it, there you are. So I kind of rolled through it like that. And I, I, I really prefer the commercial end of it. I don't know. I'm sort of I don't know. I'm sort of dull. It's like corporate, you know, you sleep in your own bed every night. There's a schedule. People do things on time. It's just very reliable. The, the independent film things were so exciting and fun and I, I love them, but it's, it's a, it's an unstable life. I mean, you sort of right. get kidnapped out of your life, right? You're like, I just want to get my mail <laughs> and I haven't <laughs> been home in nine months, you know, or like you run home and un, you don't, you kind of don't even ever unpack your suitcase. You just pack it up again and go someplace else. So it's just sort of a nomadic. I'm, I'm glad I did most of that stuff when I did, because I do think that's more of a young man's uh, game from my point of view. But um, yeah, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of, I love New York. I love being here and uh, I, I really love it when I get to work here and sleep in my own bed. When I told my listeners that you were coming on the show, I asked them to submit some questions and I chose the most intelligent of them. Is that okay? Okay. Okay. First question. What was it like to work on sex in the city? Oh my God. That was wonderful. Um, I had actually been auditioning for that show, the pilot. Like I had been called in, I think, for the part of Charlotte and, um, you know, didn't get very far. Got, got Maybe got along a little bit, but that went away. And then they were so wonderful. Every year they would call me in, you know, for one, once or twice for an episode. And I just didn't get them, didn't get them. But they just, you know, kind of stuck with me. They were like, we'll find something for you. <laughs> and I think my episode was I mean, I think it was in the seventh season or something. So it was just funny. I just assumed I was never going to book any, book it, but I did. And then Sarah Jessica Parker, she was she was a you know producer and so involved with that show. But I, she wasn't in my scene, or I don't even think she was working that day. But she came to my trailer, introduced herself to me, welcomed me to the show, you know, chatted with me, which I thought was just so professional and warm. And and the set was great. Everyone was hilarious. And then the other lovely thing that happened. So my episode aired and. Everyone got a kick out of it, and that was that. And then when the show ended, they picked a moment from a scene that I had, the, the scene that I was in, my tiny little scene, and they put it on the wrap-up, like the series wrap-up. So it ended up on all seven um, years of the DVDs, and all... I mean, so in any case, I got residuals on every season of Sex and the City, even though I only said like one line for one second. So that was also an interesting little funny thing. I was like, what is going on? All of a sudden, my, you know, residuals like, you know, went up by 10 times and I finally figured out what had happened. So that was also a funny little thing. It was a delightful. They were so nice. I mean, Mario Cantone, just screamingly funny and um, great experience. Loved it. 
Second question, you have worked with Broken Lizard twice now. What is it like to work with such a talented comedy group? They are just five of the most delightful people you'll ever meet in your life. And the funny thing, how I ended up meeting them, their producer was uh, dating a friend of mine. And when I met them all, I was, you know, we're all chatting and they were like, oh, we went to this up this little school in upstate New York. You probably never heard of it. And it was Colgate, which is where I was born. And so they just called me a townie. They were like, oh, my God, you were a townie. I'm like, I was a baby. I was one. And they're like, and you were a townie. Um, you know, because I was like one of the people that lived in the town. I was like, my dad was faculty. They're like, yeah, you're a townie. So um, I was always the Colgate townie to them. And then, yeah, that we ended up just staying friends for, for ages. Um, actually had a long relationship with one of the guys subsequent. Oh, nice. Um, which was great. And then um, they, yeah, Super Troopers, they just, they needed a model for a photograph in that movie. So I just did that for them. Um, and then in, for Beer Fest, yeah, I, I, they, they had me in for the table read, you know, just as it was going along, just as sort of a favor. And then they ended up being like, well, why don't you just do it? I'm like, all right. I'm happy to. So it was, it was just, they're just more, you just can't imagine. They're just the silliest. It's like, Five golden retriever puppies running around, you know, being adorable. It's like they're just like they seem like they are. They're good, good guys. They're all super close. Their kids are all growing up together. They all they're still working together. They just they're they're starting a new movie right now um, based on Quasimodo. They just started shooting a couple of days ago mm. and they all are still writing together. They're just it's just a wonderful they're a wonderful story and just a great bunch of guys. My best friend got to see them perform live and he flat out said it was one of the funniest things he's ever seen. Yeah, it, it is. It's like when you're embarrassed because you're laughing so hard. It's like, yep. you, you, like I'm going to die. Eddie Izzard was like that. I went to see Eddie Izzard mm. you know, years ago here in New York, and my, I took my cousin. And I literally, I had a turtleneck on, and it, it was like soaking wet from tears, like just <laughs> crying, laughing. And it was almost like you're self-conscious. But the people next to you, they're like, that woman's losing her mind. But I, it was just, you know. So you landed your most popular role in 2003's Open Water. What do you remember winning the role and what preparation did you have to do prior to filming? Well, it was interesting. So when I um, when I went in for it, they'd already booked the female lead. And I guess I think my wonderful agent at the Gage Group, they were so they were such a nice group. Um, she kind of slipped me in because they thought maybe they wouldn't recognize that Blanchard was a woman's name. <laughs> she, she really had a feeling about this project. She was like, this is your part. So she, when I got there, you know, the filmmakers are very nice people and they just sort of were like, oh, there must have been some mistake, but they let me do it anyway. And then, you know, then they were like, well, great. Now what are we going to do? Because they sort of agreed with my agent that it was just the perfect fit. So we had to go through a little bit. They kept sort of saying to me, are you sure you want to do this? You know, this is a really physically, you know, it's going to be scary and it's going to be hard. And we, you know, the schedule is going to drag out because we can only shoot, you know, for a couple of weeks here at a time. It's like a year commitment. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm sort of trying to be cool like a hockey player. I'm like, yeah, it sounds good. You know, they were like, just kept coming back. Are you, you don't sound very excited about it. I'm like, well, I mean, I'm trying to play it cool. And then finally I was like, yes, I really, really, really want to do it. <laughs> so, um, so we did that. And then preparing for it, I had already been certified in scuba diving, but I, it, it, it wasn't a very robust class. It was it wasn't a resort class, but it was a, it just literally the teacher just wasn't very good. He just basically did everything for us and checked, checked everything off the list. And I, I didn't learn a lot. So I took a whole new retook, a, a much more 
um, in-depth class and really felt like a, you know, got myself where I, I felt confident to do everything on my own and I'd know what to do if, you know, something went wrong or help other people. So we, I did that. And then, yeah. And then it was just uh, throw tuna in the water and jump in. Do you still scuba dive? I, you know, I hardly have. Um, I went, it's funny, Jay Chandrasekhar, who's the broken lizard, one of the guys who directs a lot. His wedding was in Hawaii and um, I dove there. And then, you know, once or twice, other in Bermuda, once or twice, but I just, you know, I just haven't, it hasn't really come up. Like anytime I go to one of those places, I always like to dive. I used to dive a lot more when I was younger. I think I was just traveling more, you know, just put myself in those positions. But yeah, since, and of course, after open water, it's not like everybody saw that movie, but the people that mostly divers did, you know, because divers like diving. So they were attracted to that title. Every time I was on the boat, they're like, well, I guess we're shark proof. What are the odds that this girl's going to get eaten by a shark? You know, they and I would always be surprised that, that they'd even seen it, let alone would recognize me. But I guess I was in wardrobe. I was in the same. I was If I was ever going to be recognized, I, I was wearing the same thing I was in the movie. So I guess that's why. Okay. So just for the permanent record, you did film with live sharks. Yes. Yes, we did. We shot all the, we called them the union sharks, the sharks we planned on seeing. Um, we shot the, all those out in two days. So it was the first two days of the shoot. We just, um, and then the Chris, uh, the editor, the director, writer, everything. He basically edited the, the movie around those shots. Like he knew we had, those were the, the key shots that, with the sharks in them. And then the, the scenes were sort of written and crafted around those good moments because he couldn't count on, he had to know what he had to work with, you know? So we shot, we shot two full days, just, you know, every angle under, you know, from underneath, from the ocean level, from the boat, you know, every scene that we could, everything we could think that we needed. But then of course, during the shoot, because we were out in the ocean for ages, there would be non-union sharks that would just come up. And um, that was always really hairy. There was like, there were the four of us, the two actors and the two directors, mm -hmm. and then the guy driving the boat. And he would stand there and he, cause he had a better vantage point for looking down into the water. We, you know, sometimes when there's a glare, you can't see underneath. I mean, there could right. be 10 sharks under there. You'd have no idea. Right. So he would all of a sudden be like, Hey, okay guys, you know, I think we should take a break. Anybody hungry? I could make you a peanut butter. And we're like, what, what, where is it? What is it? How big is it? You know, whatever. And he'd be like, no, no, I'm just, I, I need to take a break. So, uh, you know, and, and he was always trying to be so nice, but we're like, there's clearly a shark right here. So we would just quietly try to calmly, you know, get back to the boat and get up the ladder and then just wait until they went away. So that was probably my least favorite part. Are we talking tiger sharks or great whites? No, they were mostly almost all reef sharks. We saw we had one hammerhead and we had one which we thought was a bull. But in general, you know, they're I mean, less dangerous. I mean, they end up biting a lot of people because they're near the beaches. Yeah. Um, and it's just more people in the water. You're going to have more interactions with sharks. Um, so, but they don't tend to be the ones. They they tend to be a little smaller and um, and they don't. They tend to kind of take a bite and swim away. They don't tend to. And when they do, they don't bite you in half because they're not big enough. So, um, yeah. So this is pure coincidence that you're on the show. As my wife and I just spent our anniversary last year in Hawaii, and much against my better judgment, we went snorkeling about four miles off the coast of Waikiki looking for sea turtles. Uh, it was a lovely time, but what amazed me is they kept a very strict list of who went in the water and when we got out of the ocean. They did a verbal roll call, and I asked one of the dive masters, and she called it, the open water rule. That's, yeah, I mean, you know, we always felt so bad. I mean, it was, you know, we tried to make make sure the 
the dive people didn't look like the bad guys. It was just human error, right? right. Um, it, you know, it was just a, it was an easy mistake to make. Um, but yeah, we did joke about it. We, my uh, acting partner Daniel, who who played my husband in the movie, he would always say, he's like, I'm going to take a fifty dollar bill and like give you know rip it in half and give it <laughs> give it to one of the guys and say you can other have the other half when I get back on board. You know, like <laughs> just to make, make sure someone's paying extra attention to you specifically, you know, getting back safely. I'm like, that's a good idea. Maybe yeah. it'd have to be a hundred now. At the time, 50 would have done it. Probably have to be a hundred now. Well, you say that, but the flip side of that coin can be that your participation in the film could have made the hobby probably infinitely more safer. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, that would be a wonderful result. Uh, I hope it made people pay a little bit more. I mean, I, I would think if I was in that business, it would make me double check my processes. I don't know. I mean, that was such a lovely way to look at it. Mm. Never thought of that. Okay, Devald Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break, but we'll be right back with the conclusion of this amazing interview. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink, take some super nice, long, deep breaths, you know, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Pay attention to two friends of the show, and we will be right back. Welcome to Wine Chats with Bildo and Lindalyn. My name is Billy Milovanovic, a.k.a. Bildo. My name is Lindsay Kirkwood, also known as Lindalyn. And this is our offensively funny podcast about drinking wine and chatting life. Some of our previous topics include conspiracy theories. I know somebody that thinks the world's flat. What? Like a real person? Yes. Body ailments. I'm going to go from toes up because I have a lot. <laughs> no, seriously, you laugh, but I have so many this body ailments. what happens with age, guys. And I know. And orgasms. I'm a little bit frustrated and it just hasn't been happening. I, I'm trying, Henry's trying, we're all trying, but when orgasming is good, it's good. Basically, we talk about all the things that you would generally talk about over wine with your girlfriends. New episodes out each Monday. Chat, Chat soon. Have you ever wondered what it would be like if time did stand still? The flowers and the plants would never develop to their full potential. And neither would you. Time is important to everyone. Plants, animals, and you. As you grow, you learn. And as you learn, you change and develop. And that development is the thing that determines your future. So time is our friend. If we use our time wisely, we'll enjoy all the good things that life has to offer. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts. Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. This is Country Boy for One My Black History. And if you listen to my podcast, this is some of the things that you will enjoy. The term Jim Crow derives from early 19th century minstrel shows. It was a popular form of entertainment, which is the predecessor to vaudeville. 
The shows consisted of a primarily white song and dance performer crudely mimicking African-Americans for the enjoyment of white audiences. One of the earliest and most famous was Thomas Daddy Rice, who devised a strutting, dancing character supposedly mimicking a prancing crow, and the character became known as Jim Crow. And if this is the type of content that you enjoy, you can find more content like this at OneMikeHistory.com. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 75 of the Dark Duval Show. Let's get right back into the show with the conclusion of our interview with actress and writer Blanchard Ryan. What do you remember from the release and the premiere of the film? That was that was really trippy. Um, it's an interesting thing, you know, doing press for something like that. You you basically you're you're, you're being yourself, right? I'm Blanchard. I'm not the character in the movie, but you you're under orders you know, from, from the studio, like this is, this is our approach and these are the talking points and this, you know, this is what we want to get across. And a lot of the stuff that they, that they wanted, which I understand, which is like, I was swimming with sharks and I was in great danger, you know, at every moment I, I could have been eaten and killed. And of course the filmmakers <laughs> very much didn't want me to say that, you know, cause they hadn't put us at risk and they protected us incredibly. And I would never have done it if I thought I was, I mean, did I have moments where my heart went into my throat? Yes. But it, on, of course I wouldn't have done it if I thought I was really going to get eaten, you know, and I felt very secure and safe. So, but Lionsgate of course was like, that's not really very sexy. <laughs> you know, it, I, I get it. They're marketing the movie as like, you know, this it, not only is the movie good, I hope that they, they thought so, and I think that they did, but they also are trying to stir up a little bit of, you know, a little free son of danger, right? Mm-hmm. And it, I totally understand that, but I was sort of caught in two places. Like, I, I if I hit one thing, like, oh, God, I was so scared, then the filmmakers, you know, then... It, it, they'd get they'd be sad you know to to hear that and then if i if i said oh gosh no they protected us and we were never in any danger landscape was like yeah that's not really the direction we're going so anyway there's a little bit of a, a being in the middle there which was a new experience to me i'd never done a big promotion like that but on the other hand we went to australia we went to london we you know went to amazing we went to the maui film festival which saw the movie like under the stars on a, you know, laying on a big hill. And, you know, I got to wear fancy clothes and meet all kinds of interesting people. And so it was, uh, it, but it's a different kind of work, right? It's a little more calculated than, than creative, I, I would just say. One of the fan questions I've saved for this part of the interview, and one I myself am quite interested to hear about, is what are your opinions on the ending of the film? Yeah, um, you know, I, I loved it. I, I thought that it was surprising. I mean, you, you just, you know, you usually have the, you know, the last girl and these kind of genre things, but he makes it. I thought it was terribly sad. Um, I, I don't think, I, I don't think it would have rung true 
had I been saved, I mean, believe me, when we after we sold it at Sundance, we had some very big names who said, you know, I'll give you any any money you want. We can reshoot the ending and do it the right way. You know, they wanted me to be like scooped out of the water by Viggo Mortensen and, you know, <laughs> run off to a desert island, which, you know, isn't a bad life. I, I, I could see that. But yeah, Chris just very much stuck to his guns. And and I think that it. I think it was much more moving that way, probably. And also, I was like, well, I just kind of. My husband was dead and I pushed him away to get eaten by the sharks. And then like, what kind of life would that woman have had if she had lived? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I'm a, I think she's better off where she is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, how do you live after being like telling his family what happened? Well, you know, why didn't you hold on to him? Well, he was shark bait at that point. Better him than me. He was dead. I was alive. You know, I don't know. It's kind of, I don't know. I think that would have been hard to sell really to me, but. We we tried to have a sense of humor about it, even though it was the saddest movie. I mean, my dad kept watching it, watching it, and he was joking, but he's like, "I just keep hoping you'll make it." You know, <laughs> and uh, it was just so sweet. Um, but well, it it's very sad. I agree. I, I I get it. It's a real downer of a movie, really. In reflection, looking back at it now during the production, did you have any idea it would be the box office and critical success it ended up being? No, 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 no. I mean, I had done you know. 20 independent films before that. This was just another independent film. I mean, and none, nobody ever saw the other one. So why would ever, anyone ever see this one, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, my little movies have actually, I did pretty well. You know, they actually made it to festivals and they might have gotten a little blockbuster release or, you know, or something like that. But no, we had, it was absolutely mind-blowing. Um, it really all shifted at the at the Hamptons Film Festival. It got in at the last minute and we were worried because Chris, it, it hadn't, it, it wasn't even picture locked and the music, the mix wasn't, you know, really where he wanted it to be. And so he was so afraid that it was going to ruin, you know, we would show it there, it would get panned and that would be the end of it. And there was a critic there for whatever reason. I mean, he just absolutely just went nuts over it. And the, the crowd was adorable. They were like, are the actors here? We just want to make sure they're okay. Like, could you say, please stand up? You know, it was, it was really, the, the, the response was wonderful. And this, the variety it was i think he was from variety and he wrote this this, this glowing review and he and he suggested to sundance that you know they were like they need to have the, the movie there and it changed, it really changed everything for us and then sundance you know it sold so fast and the crowds were wonderful it was it was mind blowing just because we we'd been alone just the four of us we started it in 2001 and it came out in 2004 i mean it'd been two and a half years that we'd just been all alone on it so to all of a sudden have other people even know what it was or seeing it or to be able to talk about it. It was, it was wonderful. It was really, really rewarding. And we were just so thrilled. It was really neat. So this next question is a popular one here on the Derek Duvall show and anyone who has had any interaction with him, I have to know all about it. Tell us what it was like to go on Conan. Well, so Conan gave me my first job ever in the acting industry. He got me my SAG card. So I used to do sketches on Conan way back at the very beginning. Like I think he had just started. And when it was when I was still at MTV. And so I I did, you know, 10, 15 um, sketches with, with him and Andy and Max, Max Weinberg from the band and everything. So when Open Water came out and I was going to I was doing going to do talk shows, um, I had the, the choice. Of, it's, it's interesting the way it worked. But Jay Leno is like, you can't do any other of the talk shows before mine. You have to you can do the master. Like I could have done the tonight show and then gone on to do Conan and, and whoever else, but I couldn't do Conan 
before Jay. And I, I said, well, I'm going to do Conan instead. And I swear it may have been the beginning of the end of my relationship with my managers. Um, but I, I just was like, there's no world in which I'm not going on Conan. So I passed on the Tonight Show and I went and did, and I, of course that was off the table. I went and did Conan. And, but it was just so funny because he was like, I don't think anyone has ever, ever <laughs> been in sketches and then been a guest. He's like, I think I would remember. So it was just the first time that that had ever happened. And he gave me so much advice because he was one of the first ones I did. So he just he was just saying, like, this is how this is what we as hosts are looking for. We've got you covered. So all you have to do is just, you know, be yourself and we will make sure that the that the segment goes well. So you don't have to worry. You know, you're secure here. Like we will make sure you have a, a great experience and we'll we'll pitch your movie and we'll make you seem charming and approachable. And, you know, he's like, you don't have to do too much. So don't worry. He's like, when you go to these other people, they're professionals, they have producers, the sex organized, like relax and enjoy it. And it's just sort of, he sort of just like took the pressure off of me feeling like I always had to be, you know, perfect and, you know, funny and charming and this and that. He was like, we got it. We got it. So that was really helpful advice for me heading into all that. And he's just the funniest, nicest. I mean, everyone, he's really is a special person and silly as a goose i mean seriously just a total goofball nonstop. and um but even back way back in the day when doing sketches and stuff he would always come around and see what what was going on and he'd laugh you know when you know everything he was just he was like a fan of his writers you know like he would be like oh my god that's so funny you killed that you know he's just so supportive and and you can also tell when the hair and makeup ladies like you can totally tell when you go on a show like uh, you know, something like that, or a Blue Bloods, or a soap opera, whatever it may be. When you're working with people years, year after year, it's always the hair and makeup people. You can tell when they're like, "Yes, he's a very good actor. He's he, yes, we're very lucky to work with him." I'm like, "Oh my God, they hate him," you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like you can just tell when they're like not warm about, or they don't have their pictures up on the makeup mirror and all that stuff. But Conan was just, oh my God, they just adored him. He was like their son, and and um, they just couldn't talk enough about him and brag about him and tell silly stories about him and that's to me that's always a, a real telling sign you know it's one of my super cool life moments but i met conan very briefly when he was doing the legally prohibited from being funny on tv tour after the tonight show nightmare and all i can say is he gives off this very kind genuine warm aura and you can tell everyone around him just loves being around him and what they do he's just super genuine he is and he's all him all the time right nonstop like there's no like other well listen i wouldn't know it's not like i hang out with him but you know it seems to me in terms of his work um uh exposure he just really just seems to be the same guy he's always been yeah i remember during that whole jay leno thing when jay was like well don't anyone get mad at conan and and uh you know, just I just want to reiterate, of course, this isn't Conan's fault. We're like, who ever thought for one second it was Conan's fault? <laughs> like, who is who are these people you're referring to? Like, there's not a single person in the world who thinks it's anyone's anyone's fault but yours. And it was just you talk about it disingenuous. You know, I mean, insincere. I was just like, oh, my God, dude, stop talking. Anyway, I have in storage a thumb drive that has the very first episode of Conan's Tonight Show. And it's sad that after all that went down on NBC, they scrubbed the internet of every trace of it online. Some friends, like, we tried to get a bunch of the old sketches, and Conan tried to find one that night. He was like, this is fantastic. We'll show, you know, one of your old sketches and, yeah. you know, and an open water clip. But we couldn't dig them out. Like, they, like a lot of them, they just are gone. They yeah. just, they aired. And if somebody didn't catch it on a VHS somewhere, they, they don't they don't have them. And it's just, it was a different time, the technology and the, you know, yeah. all that. 
So it's a shame because I would love to have some of them. So my last fan question is about your time on the show, uh, Orange is the New Black. Yes. A lot of my listeners want to know what it was like to work on that show. Oh, yeah, that was so cool. Yeah, I did two different ones, um, just sort of the same, like a reporter. But, oh, my gosh, it was so neat because, first of all, it, it just it's so nice. You just really notice the difference when, you know, the the producers or the writers, like they just come and even when you're the tiniest person and you're there for two seconds and they really just, you just need to do your job and leave. I mean, you, you know, it's not like it's a big family reunion or anything. You're there for just to do a tiny little thing and that's it. But the fact that they take the time to, to make you feel welcome for the day. And, you know, it's hard to, to walk into a group like that where everyone knows each other so well and working together for years and you're just the outsider, you know, you're the new, the new kid, right? And it's also kind of, it's like not worth really getting to know everybody because you're leaving in four hours, you know? So it's just, a, it's a little bit of a, an odd vibe, but they were very um, warm and welcoming and funny. The, the writer of my episode you know, just told me funny stories about watching my casting tape and, and how much they all liked me and stuff. And we joked about, like, I, I tend to be a big consensus candidate. Like, you know, the little information I get about when you book jobs, it's, it's not always that I'm the number one choice, but everyone's like, oh, yeah, oh, we, yeah, she's great. Absolutely. We can all agree on that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so on Orange is the New Black, she's like, no, we all liked you. She's like, you, you're not, you know, she's like, you were our first choice. And I was like, thank you for saying that. <laughs> um, it's just some of this information that you don't always get, you know, and you wonder about. But um, they were so cool. And I got to work with, and I'm, I can't believe I'm going to space on her name now, um, but an actress that I've always loved. And, and she, I was, I was screaming at her like a, she was one of the prisoners and I was trying to ask her questions as a reporter and after it cut um she was like wow you're really annoying good for you and I was like thank you she's like that's really like you're really irritating me I'm like oh thank you that's wonderful I'm so happy anyways it was a it was a funny little exchange for me so <laughs> that's awesome so it is my understanding that you have taken a break from acting and are now focused on writing yes more more of that yeah I, I did a little print work over the it, the pandemic has been hard anyway, mm -hmm. but you know, it's interesting in my writing. Yes. I was loved having the time to just focus on that and spent time with my family as, as soon as I was allowed. And, um, I really did take, you know, it's been definitely a, a not acting focused year, but I miss it, you know, and it, it was nice. And I think a lot of us who had kind of gotten into the routine, I won't say taken for granted. I always loved, I loved the lifestyle, you know, go, you go to a couple auditions and walk around the city and you run into your, friends at different auditions and it's you know it's a it's a lovely lifestyle and and i actually if i probably i like the lifestyle probably better than i like the actual work on set um if i had to be completely honest because that's you know kind of scary and hard and you know mm -hmm. why not pick the fun easy stuff but yeah we all really missed it. it was like gosh i would love to sit in a in a casting office for an hour and a half and you know that's packed with actors and we're all like bored and frustrated and whatever but we're like oh we kind of miss that camaraderie and um, you, you come to appreciate things. It's like people, like regular old business people, they'll be like, I miss meetings. You know, when everyone complains about meetings and all of a sudden you're like, I'd love to be in a meeting. It's just, it's given us all an appreciation for all the little things in life, even the things that don't go smoothly, the things that may not be entirely, you know, joyful or pleasant. Um, they were still part of our life that, you know, we ended up really missing. So I think it has rejuvenated me a little bit in terms of, you know, wanting to, uh, to throw myself back into it a little bit. And I finished the uh, writing project I was working on. And so I feel like, you know, it's, it's probably, you know, it's an ill wind that blows no good, but I do think it, um, it sort of, uh, it makes me, um, maybe want to 
throw myself back into it a little bit more. So I'm trying to be grateful for that. So what does the future hold for Blanchard Ryan? <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm going to try to uh, pitch my pilot that I wrote and see how that goes. And, and pilot season is right around the corner. I love TV. I, I really prefer it um, uh, over movies. Not that I turn things down. I, I audition for everything. But it would be wonderful if we can get in-person auditions going again. I'm not sure how that you know that's going to work. Things tend to get worse in the cold cities in the in the winter time. You know, I'm worried that things are going to intensify here with breakthrough COVID. But uh, yeah, just uh, just looking forward to the future, trying to get back to at least the new normal, whatever that's going to be. See, yeah, see what happens. So that's that's it. Watch a lot of hockey and spend time with my family over the holidays. That's in the, the more near future. As we begin to wind down this interview, what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Oh, um, well, I'm I'm on Twitter, but I basically tweet about hockey and nothing else. Um, <laughs> once in a while, you know, people, you know, people, and it's funny, people are always like, are, are you not working anymore? I'm like, no, but I don't want to talk about work. I'm like, I want to talk about fun. You know, like, I want to talk about my hobbies. It's, 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 it's funny. There's a, something about, I think, being in the entertainment business that people, I don't know, they think it's not a job in terms of it's something you do free, if you know. Or they think like, oh, God, I'd love to do that. You wouldn't have to pay me. I'm like, I think you'd change your mind if you had to pay the rent. But it's just a funny thing. And I'm like, I don't I don't want to talk about work when I'm doing my silly, fun, you know, downtime. Um, so I'm usually basically tweeting about hockey. But once in a while, I'll put a, a picture up from set. Um, but, yeah, I don't really talk about it much. And, yeah, my Instagram, I'm, I I don't really use it. I, I, look, I like to look at other my friends' kids' babies and see their parents and you know stuff like that but i don't i'm not i'm not very good at it derek i should get better at it but <laughs> i'm an old i'm an old dog and uh it's, a, it's still a new trick to me even though it's been around for a long time so yeah but they're welcome to follow along my thoughts for hockey i i have a lot of those so if they're interested in that um i'm on twitter i am at fbr212 so it's uh my middle name i'm susan blanchard ryan is my full name so um, it's my initials and then 212, which is a New York City area code. Right on. So I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of Earth? Oh, it's, that's a big one. That's a big question. I think I would probably say, and this is most especially after this past couple of years, that I would say try to remember it's okay to change your mind about things are okay to sort of get more information and have a new opinion on something that we don't have to get so locked into this is what I believe and this is the truth and this is the only way that things can be. I think there's there's been a lot of, um, I've seen a lot of, you know, people having these eye-open experiences. Like I didn't realize I was, I was this kind of person. I didn't realize what I was doing was sort of, you know, biased or prejudiced or um, racist or, you know, anything. And, and, but they're so dug in, they, they can't allow themselves, even if they'd kind of like to, they can't, don't seem to be able to allow themselves to be like, well, I, I guess I don't feel that way anymore, even though I have for 50 years. Um, and I think it's just to give ourselves permission that we're allowed to learn new information and we're allowed to shift the way we feel and the way we behave. And there's no, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, it's growth and, and, you know, we all hate change. I, I, I sure do. Um, but sometimes it's so much for the better. So I would just say to keep an open mind um, when faced with change or, or making new choices. And that, yeah, that I think it's rewarding if you can let yourself do that. Blanchard, thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on the show today. This has been an absolute, absolute joy. 
Oh, me too. I'm so glad that you reached out. I appreciate it so much. And um, best of luck with the show. I'm a new fan following along. Uh, I greatly appreciate that. Thank you so much. And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 75. I want to thank Blanchard again for being so gracious with her time. I cannot wait for everyone to go and rediscover her body of work. I'm telling you, folks, if you haven't seen it already, open water will scare the hell out of you. We still have so much more good stuff coming your way. Uh, We still have a jam-packed August recording schedule before we take our interview hiatus in the month of September so the Duvals can have their UK vacation, which, believe me or not, folks, it's a long overdue. Uh, Before we come to the conclusion of this episode, I want to mark the passing of a music icon. Uh, Yesterday, we learned that Olivia Newton-John has passed away after a long battle with cancer. And seeing the tributes pouring in and her song from Greece, Hopelessly Devoted to You, trending. You know, folks, this one hurts. Uh, I don't talk about this stuff too much because it's just weird. But Olivia Newton-John was actually one of my very first crushes growing up. Uh, the other being Carrie Fisher from Return of the Jedi, but that's an entirely different conversation. Uh, Olivia had the voice of an angel, and I am incredibly sad that she is now no longer with us. So, yeah, that that, that one sucks. That really sucks. Um, on behalf of the entire team here at the Dark Duval Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, be safe out there. This world is getting too damn crazy for me, man. No star, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of the Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, to explore past episodes and find links to purchase merchandise. Please subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Derek Duval Show.